Hello and welcome to Schools In, this week's episode of 128 Sterling. Now, you went to school. You remember the rebels, the independent spirits. Well, here's one. Lynn Barber, the renowned English interviewer, former literary editor of Penthouse magazine, fancy that, and now the Sunday Times columnist whose memoir of her suburban London 1950s upbringing and education was such a splendid, evocative movie. An education is the tale of a young girl growing up in an England still on the mend from the war, short years out of rationing. It's a country in which swindlers abounded and the rules were changing for social classes and for women. The young Lynn Barber, a student at Lady Eleanor Hollis School in southwest London, knew very much what she wanted, certainly more than her parents did. What she wanted was out, and Oxford was the means. Here's a passage from the book, and Sarah McLaughlin reading it. From an Education by Lynn Barber Rather than waste endless evenings going on dates with men, why not go to bed with them first and see if I fancy them? This was quite an unusual attitude at Oxford at the time, and one that gave me a well-earned reputation as an easy lay. I probably slept with about 50 men in my second year. My fantasy in those days was to meet a stranger, exchange almost no words, jump into bed, and then talk afterwards. But often there was no afterwards, either because the sex was a disaster or because my pretense of sexual confidence scared them off. I did great noisy pretend orgasms with lots of yes, yes, more, more, but I still hadn't experienced the real thing. In retrospect, it is really odd that I persisted with sex as long as I did. Normally, I'm so terrified of being bored, I'll go to the ballet once and say, right, that's it, I tried the ballet and it was boring, don't do that again. But somehow with sex, I knew it would come right in the end. And eventually it did. When, if ever, did I do any academic work? I must have done some to get a second, but I don't remember ever going to lectures. I'm not sure I even knew where they were given. And I certainly never set foot in the Bodleian Library. I quite enjoyed studying the history of grammar and etymology. I could write plausible essays on Shakespeare because I'd done him thoroughly at school. I looked for poets with the shortest canons, the metaphysicals, Keats, Gerard Manley Hopkins, and avoided those like Tennyson and Spencer, who wrote for miles. Ditto novelists, Austen was better than Dickens simply because there was less of her, and I worshipped Fanny Burney because she wrote only one novel. I still haven't read all of Dickens to this day, but I had the advantage of being a quick learner, and exams suited me fine. I would bone up the week before, regurgitate it on the day, and then forget it. I totally agree with those who say that coursework is the only proper way to judge academic attainment, while thanking my lucky stars that it didn't exist in my day. Sarah McLaughlin, reading from Lynn Barber's An Education. Sarah, the real Sarah McLaughlin, I like to say, as she's eight years the famous singer's senior, is president and publisher of the House of Anansi Press and my wife. Publishing is work that takes her and some of her office gang to Frankfurt, Germany once a year. She trades in books there, but is also reminded that we never really leave our school years behind. I think the moment that I first realized that we never really get much past our high school selves was walking into the Frankfurt Book Fair, which is the annual meeting of the publishing tribes of the world. And we all go to Frankfurt in October from all over the world, and come together to 
trade books, to buy books, to sell books, to hear about what's the newest book from any language or any place. Never is it more clear to me that life is like a high school gymnasium dance than when I walk into the Frankfurter Hof on the first day. Seeing a sea of people, my contemporaries, and realizing that I didn't know which group I necessarily belonged to or which group would necessarily accept me. And it rather reminded me of the first time I walked into my high school in grade nine and realized that I needed to affix myself to somebody or something in order to get by. And you think you get over that, but I don't think you ever do. And whether it's in Germany or here, particularly in group situations, I'm always identifying high school types. There's, you know, the popular renegade guys that all the women are attracted to, and they are going to host the big parties that everybody wants to get invited to. And we all run around trying to find out who's got an invite and how we get on the list. And there are always sycophants, people who will do anything to be recognized by the cool people, the hip people, the people who seem to be in the know about everything. And like Lynn Barber, there are mavericks. There are people that stand outside of the herd and do their own thing and don't really care. And those are the ones that you admire the most. And they establish themselves in high school and go on in life and do follow their own drum. They're not the ones you see so much in these big herds of people when you go into the Frankfurter Hof. And it's absurd, really. But it is exactly a replica of high school. Sarah's contemplations of the Frankfurt Book Fair are apt to share today, as the close world of school is our setting. School is where Flannery, the eponymous protagonist of Lisa Moore's first young adult novel, struggles to find a place. And it's where Dasha Tostikova's 12-year-old self learns the ropes. Dasha is the author and illustrator of the memoir A Year Without Mum. In it, the Soviet Union has dissolved, and Mum, a copywriter, has left to study advertising in America for a year. What with Dad already having left the family, young Dasha lives with her grandparents in one of the myriad apartments of the Seven Sisters block of Stalinist buildings. She travels with her grandmother to the writer's residence that still exists outside the city, despite the changing times, a last vestige of the Soviet Union before Perestroika. A Year Without Mum is the memoir of a childhood disappeared, but also of a political state and ways of being that are every bit as remote. Dasha Tostikova. This is my story, my book, A Year Without Mom. And the story is loosely based on my life as a 12-year-old in Russia in 1991. And how does it begin? I introduce you to the world at the time and the country that I'm living in. The city is Moscow. And I grew up in this building, which is one of the Seven Sisters buildings in Moscow, which are these massive towers. It might be interesting to read from after your mom finishes Mm -hmm. her dissertation. Um, After she finished her dissertation, my mom went to work as a copywriter at an advertising agency. She writes ads for places like Bread Factory Number 8. They give her fresh bread and she brings it home so we can all try it and say things like, I can attest, Bread Factory Number 8 produces an excellent product. My mom really loves her job, but she always talks about how advertising in Russia isn't so good. I cannot write about bread factories for the rest of my life, she says. Now America, that's what advertising is all about. (laughs) Do you have favorite frames? 
I do like the Dark Days page, which is just a page of black scribble and dark days written in really huge letters over it. That's the interesting part about growing up is that when you're little, you think everybody thinks the same as you, and then you realize that not everybody's morbid and melancholy. I'm of course, Dasha does have that very Russian aspect. She goes to bed with a sense of never being able to wake up. Oh, yeah. And has, as you say, dark days, which is this beautiful pencil scroll of a very cloudy background and the words dark days across two pages. And of course, when I was envisioning this book, I just put this on a spread with the idea that I didn't know what the imagery would be. And then when I got back to doing the final art, I realized that I thought that just having the scribble and having the dark days written in was so much more moving than any image because then the reader could fill in their own dark day imagery there. What's it like to have a childhood so cleaved in a sense? Because not only are you leaving a country, you're leaving a country at a particular time. The Soviet Union had just become the Commonwealth of Independent yeah. States mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. the attempted coup against Gorbachev in August of 1991, which comes into the story. One of your only senses of America is provided through the movie Gone with the Wind. Right. My fascination with Gone with the Wind when I was a kid and this idea of Scarlett O'Hara having to live in a world that her world was destroyed and then she lives in a, in a completely new world and the world where she had come from doesn't exist anymore and I was really really into that and thought about it a lot and then of course this is my reality to an extent you know my family lives in Russia and my grandparents live in the same apartment that I grew up in but the world is very different and maybe that happens to everybody to an extent but thinking that the world is going to be one way when you're a child and then and then it's completely different if that makes sense did you feel appetite for some kind of foreign influence I was very enamored actually with England and Scotland and had this idea that I wanted to as a, as a child this fantasy that me and my mom and Masha would actually go and live in Scotland and I drew these books of it and I read a lot of um, historical fiction about the French royal house and the English royal house and that sort of thing so I was really interested in that have you been back to Russia since many times yeah does it feel like a strange country? What happens when our childhood is, is set in a land that politically doesn't exist anymore? Right. It was just this sort of magical time. Even though my mother was gone, it was a very important time that I wanted to capture. I suppose one of the effects of a society that invests in, or has a long history of having invested in culture, whether it's dance, writing, the arts, and recognizes the, the effect that good art can have, is that illustrating, writing, dancing, painting would be regarded as a job, really. Yeah, it definitely was. Obviously, there were a lot of problems with the Soviet system, and obviously there were a lot of problems with the way that they cultivated art. But there was a system of giving these subsidies to writers and artists and musicians. And, of course, you had to follow a certain ideological stance in order to receive this money. But it was something that existed. Is A Year Without Mom available in Russian? It's not yet, no. But when I was most recently in Moscow a few months ago, I was talking to some friends of mine about it, and they had a very good point that for the audience that this book is intended, so for 12-year-olds, they are also foreign to the world that I'm describing. So it would be completely appropriate to have an outsider's view of that time for them as well, even though they're Russian. When I was 11, there were coal miner strikes going on in Britain. It was a very exciting time for Mm -hmm. me because I got to huddle with the family around the oven and make toast. Yeah. Dasha is 12 when 
the army attempts a coup upon Gorbachev, a coup d'etat, and the word coup is just fun for Dasha because it sounds like a bird. Do you remember that time? Oh, definitely, very clearly. It was very, it was very exciting. And my grandmother, who's a journalist, was writing about politics at that time, so it was it was very present in our house. And I feel like that part of the book is pretty true to life that we were in the country and the phones weren't working and nobody knew what was going on and you know the swan lake was on tv the whole time and now swan lakes has become a euphemism so if there's swan lake on tv people joke or are rightfully worried that there is some sort of government overthrow happening somewhere it was very nerve-wracking but i think that when you're inside of something it's very different than when you see it on the news or when you see it from a different country because at, at the same time as it was exciting and scary, there was also just normal life going on. I often joke that uh, Canada is the Soviet Union that works. In Toronto, where we're speaking, people go to just a couple of stores for their plumbing and hardware bits. And I suppose if you're really wealthy, you can go to the equivalent of the diplomatic store and get right. something even fancier. What was stuff for you? I mean, your mother is mailing you chocolates and other things and crayons in boxes. Were you conscious of the abundance of stuff outside the Soviet Union? Definitely. Everybody who would go abroad would always bring children candy uh, and gum and things like that. And, you know, my mother would ask for shoes and things like that for me as well when my grandmother or grandfather traveled or my dad. But I was really a lot less concerned with the shoes and things, and I really cared about the toys and the candy. And the candy I would hoard. I would keep it all in a bag and I would itemize it, and I wouldn't let any of my friends eat it because I really liked the order of having the accounts meet, the itemization. (laughs) I can remember being, it's a piece of Canadian folklore now, but being at the Montreal Canadiens Soviet Red Army hockey match on New Year's Eve 1975. Apparently one of the greatest hockey games played of all time, a 3-3 draw. Uh But I went into the locker room afterwards with my dad, and the Soviet team were all wearing the same blue denim jean jackets. Oh, yeah. A jean jacket comes into play in Dasha's little chapter. Right. I wasn't so pleased with that jean jacket, I have to say. I felt that it was very strange, and I didn't want to wear it. The dad brings it to you from L.A. Yeah, my dad brought it for me from L.A., but it was guest brand, which meant zero things to me at the time. And then, of course, the following year when I was in the States, it was really on brand, and it was very thoughtful of my dad to have gotten it for me because then it allowed me an entry into this other thing. One aspect of the story would have been that back in California, your short jean jacket with the long sleeves would have made you similar, would have allowed you to fit in. Yeah, for sure. In in Moscow, you would have stood out. Right. Did 12-year-olds want to stand out, or would they rather have been like the rest? Oh, no. I think as a 12 and 13 and 14 and 15-year-old, I only wanted to fit in. Yeah. And at one point, Dasha is advanced. She's talented in, in math. That accounting yeah. of chocolate eggs, you know, yeah. <laughs> somewhere. Um, and that creates a bit of difference. Yeah, that happened. That in real life, that happened a little bit earlier on. I think we were a little bit younger when that happened. But yeah, my friends were very mad at me for being advanced to a higher math class and didn't speak to me. And I didn't actually did not remember this story at all. And my friend Natasha remembers it very vividly and talks about it, and is completely mortified by her own behavior. And she remembered me calling their house and her not picking up the phone and then her mom just reaming her about it and saying that it was completely Because you're not walking insane. home together anymore, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you but. are touching on the universal and through your 
at least that relating of a small experience of the tyranny of young girls. We've right. discovered a kind of universality. Oh yeah, young girls are horrible everywhere, I think, and across the globe. <laughs> so Newfoundland novelist Lisa Moore, the three-time Scotiabank Giller Prize nominee, takes up where Dasha left off. The eponymous 16-year-old high school heroine of Lisa's first young adult novel is Flannery. Her father, not mother, is the one that's absent, but she, like Dasha, finds a complete world at high school and crushes too. Adults can be grotesque in a teenager's life. I always loved the way their voices were distorted in the films of Charlie Schultz's Peanuts cartoons, and here's an example. In this scene, Marty, stepfather to Tyrone, uses the occasion of a waterski outing to act out his, well, dare I say it, his childish resentment of the boy that also happens to be young Flannery's love interest. The obstacles of the youngster's world aren't only to be found in school. Here's Lisa, reading from Flannery. They were just looking at each other, Tyrone on the dock, Marty on the seat of the boat looking up. Marty had been Tyrone's stepfather for five years, and maybe this was the first time they were recognizing the hopelessness of the situation. Marty drained his beer, tossing the bottle into the bushes. A short one, he said. You'll have to get it on the first try. I've had enough of this. Finally, they were out there. Marty let the engine idle as Tyrone got his skis into position. A cloud of blue smoke hung in the air. Every move Marty made was deliberate and slow. He'd finished off a half dozen in the boat. The bottom edge of the sun was very close to the rim of the lake. The sky was flamingo-feathered. Tyrone was floating behind the boat, not saying anything at all. Marty revved the engine and the boat flew. The rope pinged out of the water in a straight line and water drops flew out in a misty spray. I watched Tyrone rise out of the white wake. The nose of the boat spanked down hard. Marty increased the speed. He seemed to be going too fast on purpose, but Tyrone was up. He bent forward with his bum sticking out, and then he was leaning way back like he was trying with all his might to stop the runaway boat in its tracks. Then he nearly fell face first, his knees in big shackles of foam, and then he was straight up again. They roared around the other side of the lake. They flew past the wharf where I was jumping and clapping and then Tyrone was passing me. He lifted one hand off the wooden bar and waved at me. I could see the thrill of it and how audacious to let go with one hand the fastest wave you ever saw and he slammed his hand back down on the bar and his whole body crumpled, one ski lifting off the water, wonky and boneless, bent and tipping, left, right, and then he was up straight again. He righted himself. He was still up. Marty had seen Tyrone's little wave to me. He did a double take. That wave must have enraged him. Marty cut the speed, letting the boat slow down so the rope went slack, and Tyrone was sinking down to his knees, almost down to his waist, and once he was good and low in the water... Marty thrust the boat into full speed again, and it jerked Tyrone so hard his body flicked like a whip and his skis smacked down on the surface and bounced up and over and over. So thanks, Lisa, for taking time out. I know you're busy. 
Loved Flannery. Pleasure, Noah. It had all the hallmarks of Lisa. Tremendous scenes, a lovely, warm sensibility. Flannery is, as a teen, swooning in love, developing a love potion for her entrepreneurial class and project, has eyes only for Tyrone, and actually quite amusing preoccupation with language. She's constantly thinking about words, tender, flabbergasted. Is that a, a little bit of you creeping in in a kind of Hitchcockian way? Oh, I guess so. I think a lot of young adult fiction, especially young adult fiction that has a female protagonist, has to do with writing. There are a lot of would-be writers in young adult fiction. So, you know, I'm thinking of Joe March in Little Women, who is scribbling away, and also Anne of Green Gables, and becomes a teacher, and she has a love for the dramatic. And also writing with a first-person narrator, and, and this is the first time in Flannery that I tried a first-person narrator. I think that the narrator is anxious or concerned with, with the way they're expressing themselves. So I think that, yes, probably it is a reflection of who I am and what my concerns are. But it's also that coming-of-age thing where you're trying to figure out what the world is and how to express it. I suppose it's, it's about the young person finding their voice or, the, or their personality, really. Yeah, and, and also, you know, their place in the world and how that voice places them, I guess. I've always thought of novels as beginning in doubt or with a question. Can you identify what may have been the original cause or question that prompted you to want to write and to execute a young adult novel? I wanted to capture the beauty of that changeling moment when someone moves from childhood and innocence to experience, and not the moment when they are experienced, and not the moment when they are innocent, but that moment right smack dab in the middle. And I think a lot of myths and fairy tales about changelings are about that moment of adolescence, really, and what it means to give up that magical freedom, and how much of that magical freedom of childhood we can take with us, and what we gain by letting go of innocence. You know, it's there in Genesis. And I wanted to capture that moment of actually shedding the skin of being a child, taking on responsibility and looking at life in all its beauty, but also ugliness. And, you know, standing up straight with your shoulders straightened. And I think I think that's what happens to Flannery in the end, if that's not too much of a spoiler. You're a seasoned, wonderful novelist. If you had a manifesto for writing, if you had a manifesto for writing a young adult novel, what would its first three principles be? And I want you just to rattle them off in a kind of Rorschachian way. Don't think on it too long. First three principles. Well, okay, Rorschachian rush of language here. First of all, start off not knowing where you're going. It has to be an exploration. And then uh, you have to go back and make it clean and crisp and smart and, you know, with as few words as possible to express an idea. And finally, I think every book that you're working on, you have to think of it as the only book and that you just pour everything that you are into it. Every idea, every feeling, every nuance of emotion, every image that you see and just 
ram it all in there. And that would be my advice. And is that in any way distinct from what might have been your manifesto for writing a thriller or a literary novel? No, I think it would probably be the same. What I love about writing novels and short stories too is how far you fall into the worlds of those fictions, how deeply you are immersed in it and how you feel it as though you are feeling it with your actual physical senses. And that's the case no matter what I'm writing. It's interesting to hear you use the word immerse because in fact I think across your novels and short stories there are so many fine moments in which we feel your immersion completely. I wonder if that serves a young adult novel even better because of course that is somewhat the sensibility of the young adult imagining every moment to be final and there's much less sense of the past and the future that we gain as, as adults. Well, one of the challenges of writing a young adult novel was, you know, one of the things I was afraid of was that I wouldn't be able to access that world because it's, you know, quite a ways away for me now, a long time ago. And I was afraid that I, I wouldn't be able to feel it as intensely as uh, I needed to feel it if I was going to capture it. But it really came back it, with, uh, you know, shocking clarity and and the intensity of being um, 16 years old when everything is relatively new um, and, and where there are where you're le- where you're feeling certain things for the first time you know there's there's no shelter from feelings when you're 16 you haven't yet built up any calluses and you feel it with a, an incredible intensity i think And that is the magic of what it means to be young. And as we get older, we are able to orient ourselves in terms of what's coming at us a little bit more because we've experienced some version of it before. But when you're young, you are completely open to it. And it was a real thrill going back to remembering what it felt like when I was 16. And it kind of inspired me to remember to feel things that way now, even though I'm much older. Was there ever going to be any other subject than love? Do you mean in the world or in Flannery or in my writing? In Flannery. The novel reminded me of Turgenev's first love. And that novel, its clear title, has always remained with me. I often wonder, just as an ordinary fella, if those properties of immersion that you're describing that are so important to love do actually ever return with the same beautiful toxicity that they have in your teenage years. Well, yes, that novel, First Love, was very important to me too. And I read it when I was in my early 20s. And I can remember that's also a very intense novel. Maybe there was no other way to begin. I mean, I guess the dark sister of love is betrayal and that's in the novel too maybe even in equal measure for a certain part of the novel but as you said you know when when we started to talk it 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 also has to do with finding a voice finding a voice and discovering who you are or who you can be whatever you do don't excel put that jean jacket away dasha go easy on the water skis tyrone and if you're lynn barber well Understand the social costs of knowing how to count to 50. Maybe think twice about standing out. School, even university, can be terrifying enough. 
as it was for Patty Labucane Benson, the co-author, with Kelly Mellings, of The Outside Circle. We heard from Patty a few weeks ago when I dropped by the Sage Wellness Centre in Edmonton, where she works with First Nations and Metis colleagues rehabilitating Indigenous women offenders. Patty's a Trudeau fellow. She earned her doctorate from the University of Alberta. You'd not think that fear was a word in her lexicon. But... The Fear Stone I spent my childhood and adolescence in my head. Not present. So full of social anxiety, overwhelmed by the fear chatter in my mind. It began in grade one. I can clearly remember my first day of school... I was so overwhelmed by all the children and all the energy in the room that I just cried and cried and cried. And my mom actually had to take me out of the classroom, drive me around for a while till I calmed down before I could re-enter the class. The fear manifested as a stone in my stomach. It felt like my stomach was clenching around this stone. And at times I even felt like I wanted to vomit. I think it made me appear weak and it made me appear like I had buttons they could push, and so they just pushed them over and over and over again, which resulted in my being exiled. I was definitely the bottom of the totem pole, a social standing that stuck with me right until high school. I eventually fell into a group of pseudo-popular girls, learning the art and science of being their wingman. But it was hard work, and if I wasn't 100% on my game and cracking jokes, I could be steamrolled with anxiety, left stuttering, unable to hold eye contact with the guy I was secretly crushing on, or girls voted most likely to succeed. In September 1986, I moved to Edmonton. I was vibrating with anxiety as I walked into the Butter Dome at the U of A to get my student ID. I was determined not to be that person anymore. Not to be that person who was filled with fear and unable to manage social situations. I just kept repeating in my head as I walked in that door that I was going to appear confident. I was going to make new friends, and these people would see me as somebody totally different. I just didn't want to be the victim anymore. I laid my fear stone down on the grass, and I clearly remember the spot. And I decided I was just going to be confident, to fake it until I make it. I survived the day with my new persona, but instinctively grabbed my carefully polished fear stone on the way home. I repeated this for years, consciously casting the stone aside, and pushing myself to act fearlessly and be present, but always eventually stuffing it back into my pocket, a secret talisman of anxiety, and I let the chatter back in. In my mid-30s, when I was doing my PhD, I was still doing this. I was still pushing myself to do things like apply for a Trudeau scholarship, but inside I was scared out of my mind. Even the day that I had the Trudeau interview, the chatter in my head was just outrageous. When I was walking into the interview, I didn't know if I could make it. Until one day, I realized I wasn't faking it anymore, and I couldn't even remember where I'd last laid down the stone. And I so wasn't about to go looking for it. It could stay lost forever. And, fortunate us, here's Lynn Barber with a final say. I can't say I have any fond memories of school. I was a scholarship girl in a posh girls' school that didn't really like scholarship girls but needed them to pass all the exams the nice girls couldn't manage. Anyway, it succeeded in getting me into Oxford, which was the main thing, the gateway to fun and boys and parties and everything I longed for. 
I never went back to Lady Eleanor Hollis and I haven't kept in touch with any of my old classmates. I feel sorry for people who say their school days were the happiest days of their lives. I think of mine as a long, dull, larval stage before I turned into a butterfly at Oxford. But it lasted so long. Time seemed to move more slowly at school than it ever has since. Double Latin on a Sunday afternoon felt like a lifetime's imprisonment. My friend Sarah McLaughlin says that we never really changed from the people we were at school. The bullies remained bullies, the victims the victims, the loners the loners. I sincerely hope that's not true in my case. Sulky, sullen, sarcastic, I prowled the corridors with beetling brows, turning my death stare onto anyone who had the nerve to accost me. Whereas at Oxford, I can only ever remember myself smiling. I've spent 40 years as a journalist interviewing famous people, and very few of my interviewees claim to have been happy at school. On the contrary, most of them say they were profoundly unhappy. They were bullied. They were misfits, they always did badly in class. In many cases, this was because of undiagnosed dyslexia. Their teachers thought they were thick. They knew they weren't, but could never prove it in exams. But it was precisely this experience that gave them their drive to succeed in their careers, the great motive of I'll show them. So I'm going mischievously to suggest to parents that if you want your children to do well in life, Make sure they do badly in school. Thank you, Lynn Barber. In Schools In, this episode of 128 Sterling, you heard from Sarah McLaughlin, who also read from Lynn's memoir. From Dasha Tolstikova, whose own illustrated memoir, A Year Without Mom, is published by Groundwood Books. From Patty Labucane Benson, the co-author with Kelly Mellings of the graphic novel The Outside Circle, published by the House of Anansi, and from Lisa Moore, whose young adult novel Flannery is too. A big thank you to my London pal Robert Hanks, who recorded Lynn Barber for us. Lynn Barber's An Education is available in Canada as a Penguin paperback. Links to all these writers' works can be found on the 128 Sterling page of the House of Anansi website. 128 Sterling is produced for the House of Anansi with help from the Canada Council for the Arts and is presented by me, Noah Richler. Charles Spiran does the musical bits. Next time, in Lies, Lies and Frauds, I'll be talking about deceits that only get you so far with several authors, including Zoe Whittall, whose novel The Best Kind of People is surely one of the Canadian books of the year. Till then, goodbye, and thanks for listening. <laughs>